Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Owen Matthews, whose new book is An Impeccable Spy, Richard Sorge, Stalin's Master Agent. Owen, welcome. I, you know, we hear endlessly about the Cambridge spy ring. I, you know, if I never heard Guy Burgess's name again, I'd be very happy. But Richard Sorge was sort of a new one on me, even though it appears he's enormously famous in Russia and enormously famous in Japan. Who was this guy and how did you chance on him? Well, he was arguably the greatest spy of World War II. I think actually most spy authors make some grandiose claim for their for their hero or perhaps anti-hero in my case. But I think uh, Zorgi, in fact, really did play a very important part in determining the outcome of World War II. And he was, as well as being a very brilliant and effective secret agent, intelligence officer, and spy runner, recruiter, and all the rest. He also had something that other spies do not, including Kim Philby, who's probably his equal in terms of his access. Zorge was an analyst, a player, a political animal who understood the currents of his time and actually didn't just report on the doings of other spies. He actually took a very active role in involving himself in the politics of the country in which he was based, i.e. Japan. He was a German communist, an idealist. He was a very devoted to the idea after the, his traumatic experiences in the trenches in World War I of changing the world, that the old world was rotten and bitter. And he very quickly in the 1920s was drawn into the orbit of the Soviet intelligence services. To quickly set him, sort of frame him, mm. he was sort of Russian-born, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. He was, he, was, he was born in Baku to a Russian mother, a German father. His father was, a, was an oil engineer, and he grew up extremely wealthy and in a very comfortable bourgeois life. They moved to Berlin when he was a child, and he became an enthusiastic German imperial nationalist in the years before the First World War, as his father was joined the German Imperial Army straight out, straight from school in uh, August of 1914 and experienced, the, strangely enough, exactly the same sort of sweep of idealism followed by profound disappointment, followed by revolutionary fervour as Adolf Hitler, his near-exact contemporary. And actually, if you read Hitler's writings about his experiences in the trenches in Mein Kampf, they pretty much exactly mirror Zorge's, that whole sort of bitter, disillusioned generation that went through what they call the, the, the Kinderwood, the, 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 the slaughter of the innocents. He sort of uh, nearly lost his legs, didn't he? He did. He was decorated for, uh, for gallantry. He won the, the Iron Cross, as did Hitler, by the way. He was wounded three times. And in fact, it was in, in hospital in fact, strangely enough, on the other side of town of where Hitler was in hospital in 1916, 1917, that he actually first started to develop his enthusiasm for for communism through actually the offices of, of a socialist nurse who brought him all kinds of socialist literature. So by the time of Imperial Germany's collapse in 1918, he was firmly on the side of the German socialist revolutionaries. And how did he become a spy? His first calling, or so he thought, was as a socialist thinker, an academic. 
But it turns out that his real skill was in organization of various sort of warring communist factions and also organizing uh, clandestine communications for visiting Soviet leaders from the Communist International. So I think that he never actually, he, he didn't necessarily see himself as a spy right at the beginning of his career, but his, he saw himself, in fact, as, as an aspiring academic and continued to aspire to be an academic right through his career. Does he say something near the end that if I hadn't been a secret agent, I'd have been a scholar? I would have been a scholar, yes. But, but, but actually, given his later, later predilection for cocktail bars and whorehouses and motorcycles and fast living and also his clear addiction to constant danger, I mean, I, I don't think he would ever really have been happy as, as a quiet academic. <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, I, I, the, the uh, professional intelligence officers of the Communist International sort of clocked him. They spotted him as someone with great talents that they could use. And he was very quickly drawn into the orbit of the Soviet professional intelligence services. They invited him to Moscow in 1924. And uh, from then on, he was, you know, became very quickly a paid-up intelligence officer. And what are the, I mean, you've got this fantastically kind of colourful, lively, extraordinary character at the centre of what is almost an incredibly tangled web of allegiances and, I mean, I, I remember there's a bit in, I think, Tom Stoppard's play, The Dog It Was That Died, where there's the retired spy. Do you know this, this one where he's sitting and he's looking very mournful and someone says, what's the matter? And he said, well, I was an agent and then I was a double agent and then I was a triple agent and it was like <laughs> layers of an onion and... When you peel them all away, there's nothing left but the faint smell of onions. Um, and he then bursts into tears, and the other cat's, you know, don't cry, old boy. It's, you know, he said, I can't help it, it's the onions. But there was that kind of sense of him here. I mean, you know, he was in, uh, you know, in his pomp. He's in Tokyo. He's got people in the imperial court at Tokyo informing him. He's in and out of the German embassy with top-secret clearance, and he's also sending all of his information back to Stalin. Is that... Yes, that yes. Roughly right. I mean, how, That's precisely right. How did he manage these conflicting loyalties? Was he deep down loyal to Stalin and playing everyone else off, or was there a certain was there more fluidity in him? Well, there's one thing that's clear that is that he was always loyal to the security of the Soviet Union, which is not, in fact, precisely the same as being loyal to Stalin. Because um, I think it's pretty clear that from 1937, the beginning of 1938 onwards, he had very profound reservations about Stalin for a very simple and obvious reason, and that is that Stalin's NKVD tried to kill him, as he later (laughs) discovered. They summoned him back at the beginning of 1938, just as they summoned back almost every single spy that had been stationed abroad. And this entire legion of people, mostly many foreign communists, who'd been recruited in the 20s to the Bolshevik cause, were deemed by the by 1937, the year, of course, of Stalin's great purge of the party, to be politically unreliable. And very simply, the ones that returned were shot, including Theodore Marley, the, the former priest who recruited the Cambridge spy ring. They were shot as traitors. The ones that did not return either defected and were then hunted down one by one by the NKVD, by Stalin's secret police, and murdered. Or, in very rare cases, and Zorge was extremely lucky in this, they refused to go back for technical reasons. They made excuses. They didn't go back. Did and you know what was coming? It's, it's not, he, had, he was warned 
of what was coming. I think he, no one, and of course this is the sinister genius of Stalin and the Purge, is that no reasonable person could really anticipate that something that terrible would actually happen to loyal communists. So I think it's partly judgment, partly luck. But the the long and the short of it is that I think he was very sceptical of what was happening in the Soviet Union after the purges. But on the other hand, he had a very profound loyalty to communism. He had a very profound loyalty to the security of his in fact, was was literally and metaphorically his motherland, <laughs> Russia. So in terms of his other divided loyalties, he certainly never had a loyalty to, to the Nazi regime, although, again, he had a sort of deep, lingering loyalty to Germany as an idea, to, to a future Germany that would be free of fascism. That's certainly true. But the very obvious charge of him, his being a double agent, in other words, that he was essentially in Tokyo sharing lots of his the information that he got from his Japanese agents with his German sources so uh, was in fact not divided loyalty it was an exchange and in fact he was in, it was an exchange for which he got approval from his masters his real masters in Moscow that in order to be trusted in the embassy he had to share some of that information and send it back to to Berlin so you have a very strange par- you have a paradoxical situation where whereby Richard Zorge was I, I, as far as I'm aware, the only human being to have been simultane- simultaneously a member of the Soviet Communist Party and the Nazi Party. <laughs> I, I remember in good standing of both, I should add. <laughs> and the Germans were convinced that he was a German agent. Yeah. And lots of the diplomats that came to the German embassy in Tokyo, which Zorge was based on, a, employed in a sort of semi-official capacity as an advisor, although he was not actually a diplomat, was convinced that he was in some way a sort of secret German agent informing top echelons of, of military intelligence, which in fact he was. Actually, one of the one of the points you do make, though, very early on in the book, I think in your introduction, you say, you know, we look in hindsight at the way history was set up, and it looks much less fluid, you know, moving forward. The, this whole idea that you know Germany and Russia were always going to be at war, or that the Japanese were going to you know, behave as they did, wasn't at all clear at the time. I mean, so was he sort of navigating those waters a bit? Or did he see them coming? Well, yes, no, no, you you touch it with a needle. I mean, this is precisely the thing that makes the Zorge story so so strange and interesting. Because if you put yourself back in that time of a person who sees himself as a sort of secret political player in the late 1930s, that even the, the sides of who's going to be fighting who in the Second World War are totally fluid. It's not at all clear. I mean, from 1939, as we know, the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact meant that it was the, the the Soviet Union was not Hitler's enemy. In fact, on the contrary, they they supplied millions of tons of oil, soybeans, raw materials, rubber, etc., being transited from the Far East in order to compensate for a Royal Navy blockade of Germany. I mean, Germany could, would not have been able to fight the war so successfully from 1939 to 1941 were it not for the active support of Stalin. So it was much more than simply a non-aggression pact, whatever Stalin later claimed his motives were. But uh, it was not clear that the World War, the Second World War would be between Germany and Russia, for instance, from the point of view of 1939. Nor was it clear in 1939 that the Second World War in Asia would be between America and, and Japan. Not at all. And, you know, right into the summer of 1941, 
Pearl Harbor is December 1941. But the Japanese government is desperately trying to negotiate with the Americans to keep America out of the war, even while, I would say, parenthetically preparing for the Pearl Harbor attack <laughs> yeah. in secret. They also but, mentioned but, that, that Stalin had plans to invade Germany, which only came out relatively This is, the, in, indeed, I mean, it's, it's highly controversial, of course, now among Russian historians. But certainly, I mean, there is a document in the archives. I mean, it's a contingency plan document. And there's several versions of it. The, the, most, the most detailed one was commissioned by Marshal Zhukov that indeed in 1941 Stalin was preparing for or or certainly investigating the possibility of of invading Germany if they suffered a serious defeat, if they got bogged down in their invasion of England, for instance, which was the dominant strategic priority of 1940. And had that happened, I mean, Stalin, I think, would have been ready to to invade. The the Red Army, despite being fatally weakened by the purges, was in fact much bigger and numerically stronger in some ways than the German army in in, in the summer of 1941. So yes, yeah, so the, the point is that Zorge lived in this world of shifting alliances and giddying possibilities. And the biggest alliance, the biggest conflict of all that concerned him, concerned him supremely was whether Japan and Russia would go to war. And from 1939 to 1941, That was unlikely because Germany and Japan were allies and the Soviet Union and Germany were also allies. So that was all fine. But then suddenly after Operation Barbarossa, the the German invasion of Russia, Germany is intensely keen, in fact puts enormous pressure on its ally, Japan, to attack its enemy, the USSR. And had that happened, had the Japanese attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, I think there's no shadow of a doubt that Hitler would have won the war, definitely, because it, would have, it was absolutely logistically impossible for Stalin to have fought a war on two fronts. Now, you say Zorga's work actually did change the course of history. Though one of the striking things seems to be, you know, he gathered all this brilliant information and, you know, lied to everybody and they believed him. But when he told the truth to Russia, they didn't believe him. Yes. Yes, it's actually one of the, I suppose you could call this the unique selling point of this book, is that there's, there has never been a book written in the West with reference, with detailed reference to the Soviet sources. And the story that the Soviet sources tell is, is actually fundamentally incredibly tragic, is that from that moment that I mentioned earlier that he did not return in 1938 when summoned, essentially the Soviet intelligence services believed that he had been compromised, that he was some species of traitor. And everything that he told them, it was a strange combination because at the same time, they believed he was a traitor. But on the other hand, such was the climate of terror and and suspicion and distrust that sort of more or less everybody was considered to be a traitor. So, so, So you have a very strange paradoxical relationship of the Soviet military's intelligence establishment between the the fact that they used some of his intelligence at the same time as being deeply sceptical about it. But crucially, the one major piece of his intelligence that they did not use was his warning that Operation Barbarossa was going to happen in June of 1941. And he he was one of, in fact, as it turns out, 19 separate agents, including the so-called Rote Capella, the agents inside Nazi Germany, that very clearly warned in incredible detail, Stalin, that the Germans were planning to invade. And he was, in common with all those other agents, ignored. And you, you have a, there's a lovely detail in the book, we say you, you found Stalin's handwriting on one of the... Yes. 
Yes, well, it's very recognisable because he uh, he only ever wrote in pencil, in sort of thick wax pencil, red or red or blue, usually blue, and he has very recognisable handwriting and signature. It's also the biggest, always on the on the piece of paper. Of so, so, so when when you go through the archives, in the Comintern archives and the Russian and the and the Russian military's own archives at the Defence Ministry archive, and you turn the pages, and there it is, like Stalin. Yeah, and, and the big tick. And what was he cross. saying in this case? Ignore this guy. Big cross or big tick, usually, or like I approve, but I, I support it. And various marginalia, in fact, um, the, the the most the the most salty comments that Stalin made. He actually made not on, in writing, but he, for instance, on one of the re- reports of. Barbarossa in the run-up to the German invasion, he says you can take, you can send this agent to his mother <laughs> because he's just a he's just uh, a brothel keeper who has set up factories with our money. In fact, confusing Zorge with his radio man Max Clausen, who did indeed set up some very fact- uh, very profitable factories with Soviet Union's <laughs> money, and that became a problem because the radio man of the Zorge spy ring became much more interested in his factories than he was in his spying. That's <laughs> highly cool <laughs> behaviour. <laughs> um, how did you get into those archives, Canals? Because I, I, I understood that, that a lot of those military archives are closed to Western historians. Well, actually, strangely enough, one of the surprising things about, about, about lots of historical research is how much is actually lying in plain sight. Indeed, I mean, there are large chunks of, of, of the Russian military archives, particularly concerning later parts that are still closed. And for instance, large chunks of the archives pertaining to the Cuban Missile Crisis are still un- unopened. Large chunks of the, basically the KGB archives, the former KGB archives, are more or less completely closed. But, but weirdly, the, the part of the... Defence Ministry archive that pertain to the activities of the, the Fourth Department, the precursor of the Russian military intelligence, the GRU, are actually open. And of course, you don't really know what what's not there, of course. But on the other hand, the correspondence is... I mean, it was actually classified in 1960. I mean, I mean, classified in the sense of organised in 1961. Uh, it wasn't, of course, declassified until until after the fall of the Soviet Union. But you, but all the pages are numbered, and it's, it's all bound together. So it, the, the 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 whole correspondence is actually you know there there to see. There are bits and pieces of correspondence that Russian scholars have, notably Mikhail Alexeyev. And whenever we write a history book, obviously we we stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, there are people who are who have spent years and a highly specialist, including Alexeyev, who has actually found, investigated the bits of the archive which I didn't actually personally have, have access to, particularly the whole issue of the, the Groza files, which were the memoranda prepared for Stalin the about the invasion. So that part is, is, is still classified, and we only know about that at second hand from Russian researchers. But actually the, the odd thing is that there's no the, the, the amount of material that's actually lying there in plain sight. Now, I have to turn on to the question of Zorga's, obviously his historical importance is one thing, but his character is absolutely remarkable. And when you talk a bit about what kind of person he was, you describe him as a bad man who was a great spy. I mean, in what way was he a bad man? I mean, other obviously than spying for Stalin. Well, actually, a proposed of spying for Stalin, I, I don't think that's necessarily sort of ipso facto a, a bad thing. I, I think uh, as an idealistic person and thinking person in the late 1920s 
you would actually be quite justified, as many thousands of fellow travellers were, in thinking that after the Wall Street crisis, the capitalist world. So, do you think was he was profound. a person of principle? I think he was. He was a person of principle. Yeah, yes. And I, I, I think he thought in terms in, in common with thousands of communists around the world that the the the, the, the capitalist world was was disintegrating, and and the socialism was the future of humanity and the only bulwark against fascism. Which is not wrong, actually. And certainly, if you're a German, I mean, that's, that those are your choices, given the collapse of the Weimar Republic and, and the whole democratic principle. But his character, he was principled in a way. I think John le Carré actually nailed it best because he wrote a review of the first Western book ever written about Zorgi in 1966. He wrote a review saying that his communism was a fool's bladder with which he beat bourgeois society. So I think that he was essentially Jesuitical insofar as he believed believed that the ends justified the means. And his communism was just a way, was an excuse to justify his own infinite conceit and also, I think, his frankly pathological desire to deceive everybody all around him. So rather like Kim Philby, in fact, had a very similar character type. He was extraordinarily gregarious, very indiscreet, very cavalier, and like Philby, crucially, had this absolute compulsion to to deceive and and trick everybody around him. So you, in terms of human psychology, you have an, this extraordinary phenomenon of a person who spent nine years of his life in Tokyo lying to everybody around him, his best friend... Eugen Ott, the German ambassador, he deceives massively as well seduces as... Seduces his wife. Uh, uh, seduces his wife, like right from the get-go. That's, the, uh, that's his opening gambit, is to uh, seduce Eugen Ott's wife. You know. But nonetheless, it sort of works out okay. He lies to his mistress, well, all of his mistresses. I mean, not least about the there's, absence there's, of any other mistresses. There's a role of about 30 on that. I mean, not at the same uh, yeah. time, but... You know, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of... Yeah, he's, he's, there's a team, basically. He, he, he sort of swaps out members, but he, he's like a football manager. He's sort <laughs> but yes, he sleeps with about thirty women by the estimate of, of estimation of, of the American occupation authorities in Japan after the war. So he's a he's a he's a womanizer. He's addicted to danger. He has clear death wish because you know, regularly there's a light motif in the book. Like and yet again he crashes his high speed motorcycle while drunk. <laughs> then he crashes his car and then he crashes his motorcycle again. So so so, so he, he he's he reckless. There's a thing which you think if you're a super spy. You wouldn't do so much, which is sort of there's various scenes of him, you know, messing around with the samurai sword, saying, I'm going to decapitate Hitler. Morris confesses to being a spy to various people at various points, doesn't he? Yes, he gets epically drunk, even by his own standards, on the night when Hitler invades the Soviet Union and stands up in the bar of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, designed by Frank Frank Lloyd Wright, by the way, in in, in neo-Aztec style. And he stands up, stands up in, 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 in the bar of, of the Imperial Hotel and to an, to an audience of Nazis. Says, like, you know, like, I, I love Stalin, Hitler is a criminal. And everyone thinks, thinks like, oh, sort of, Pissed again. you know, crazy old Richard, like, he's so <laughs> wacky. And, and, they, and even when they're driving him home past the Soviet embassy, like, the, his close mate, Prince Urach, who happens to be the correspondent of the Volkische Beobachter, which is the, the, the most sort of rabidly pro-Nazi newspaper, says, like, should we drop in and see your friends at the Soviet embassy? And Zorge laughs. Yeah, so, so, so he has, he has this, this streak, just like Kim Philby. He has, like, incredible chutzpah. I mean, boarding on the maniacal. 
and often crossing the border into maniacal, by the way. He has this extraordinary chutzpah, Kim Philby's press conference after he's, uh, you know, after he's been accused of being a spy, you know, where he's completely suave and totally in control. And nobody can believe this, that someone who's so apparently open, and despite being a member of the Nazi party, is, and in fact was offered the leadership of the Nazi party cell in Tokyo, <laughs> because of his apparent frankness and scepticism about Hitler, no, no, well, no one can really believe that uh, that he's that he's in fact a loyal Soviet spy and in fact after he's arrested by the Japanese in 1940, 1941 his German friends can't believe it the embassy can't believe it all the, all the foreign correspondents get together and write a letter saying like definitely not he's he's clean as a whistle uh, so it, it's strange enough his his alcoholism his indiscretion and his phenomenal recklessness actually in a strange way actually all became part of, of the effectiveness, effectiveness of his double personality I mean you describe how I think it's his radio man again so you know there isn't a there isn't a sort of real him there or you couldn't get to the bottom of him did you feel you got somewhere near the bottom of him in the process of writing the book I, I think yes actually I mean I mean one always imagines that one does no I think clearly that he I think he's a person who believed in him in his own superiority very profoundly to other human beings. And the possession of secret knowledge and the, the ability to deceive people is actually a way of confirming your, your superiority because you know something that everyone else doesn't. And in, in your every human interaction for years, he was playing a, a game which only he knew the rules. And so I, I, I think he had a didactic streak. I think he was perhaps not, not nearly as much of an expert or as, as he thought. I actually have trawled through some many of the translations of his articles. I mean, they're not for the, the Frankfurter Zeitung. I mean, they're... That's when he was posing as a foreign correspondent. Well, he wasn't just posing. He actually actually really was a foreign correspondent. So so I I think he had had this idea of his own genius, which is not necessarily approved in in everything as a scholar, as a journalist, as an academic, which is not necessarily justified. The one thing that really he was a, a genius at was deception and gathering secret information. And and fundamentally, I think he he enjoyed the craft of it, the process of it more than, um, or rather the craft of it, took over from any sort of deep loyalty to the Soviet Union. I think in the end he he, he, he just loved being a spy. Uh, did you find yourself liking or admiring him in any way? Or, I mean, the relationship to Bell for a subject always interests me. Well, yes, actually, because for all of his flaws, I mean, he could have just walked away. There were several occasions where he just could have escaped. If he had thought that, I mean, you know, clearly in many ways the game was up. He was living in an escalating atmosphere of spy mania in Japan as the, as the war escalated. And yet he didn't run. So actually I found myself admiring him considerably. I mean, he, he had enormous physical courage and, and stuck with it despite the fact that he, that he probably knew at a certain point that he would pay, pay with it for his life. He tried several times to get himself recalled and go back to his wife in Moscow, Kaitya Maximova. This, the Soviets, his Soviet bosses refused. And so, just like a good soldier, he followed his orders and he stayed. And how, do, how does the story end? When, when is the game up? Well, the game is up because, curiously, th- despite the fact that the Japanese, unbeknown to the Zorgate spying, were actually intercepting his every communication from 1934, right from the beginning, 
Japanese military intelligence is onto the to, to the secret transmitter, which they move around Tokyo constantly. So they transcribe from 1934 to 1931 more or less every transmission in code. Yes, they don't have the key. At they stage, don't have the they? key. And they don't know where the transmitter is. They don't is, know where, it's, yeah. where the transmitter is. They don't know where the key is. So this is very Japanese. They, it, it's not that they said, oh, what's this? We give up. No. For years, there are people just transcribing rows of, of number groups. You know, volumes. I mean, it's like an archive of gobbledygook. An archive of gobbledygook in the long-term expectation that they will eventually be able to read it, which, of course, ultimately they were. But the the, the end of the Sorge Spirings, oh, this is a bit of a... Are we allowed to do spoilers for non-fiction books? Well, it is it is clear that, 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 he, that he's hanged. No, I do say in, right in the first chapter that he's hanged, actually. So it's a, yes. so, he's <laughs> so, not still alive. Anyway, he's not still alive. That, yeah. but, it, but, but it was it was a very minor thing. It was an arrest of a very peripheral agent and a chance remark and an interrogation that leads to the arrest of one of Zorge's closest associates, and the whole thing starts to unravel. And it becomes clear, because you know, certainly you know, one agent doesn't show up to a meeting, then another one sort of doesn't answer the phone. And then, I mean, you know, although Zorge doesn't know what's happened to them, I mean, how could he? He doesn't know. He's not in touch with them. They're in other kinds of cities and so on. I, I think he realises that, uh, that the game is up, but actually through, actually through no fault of his own. Really, the fault lies in the fact that his, his Japanese agent's mates recruit more and more sub-agents. So the spiring sort of proliferates beyond Zorge's personal control because all of these sort of secondary and tertiary characters that his sub-agents have recruited start to sort of get too wide and too too insecure. And that's precisely what brought him down, in fact. And then he's arrested and hanged. He's got a sort of poignant last words. Two years later. Two years later. Poignant poignant last words is the the Soviet Communist Party, the Red Army. The Japanese Communist Party, the Red Army, the Soviet Communist Party. Influent Japanese to his captors. So, but it's very interesting because, in fact, I think he's clearly... He had an awareness of... He was a very conceited person, as as you see in in his own prison confession that he wrote. But I think he realised that his life was potentially legendary and I think he certainly thought about that moment of how he would face death and he faced death as a soldier because ultimately despite the fact that he was an alcoholic a womanizer a spy a a, a deceiver one thing he was not was a traitor he was a loyal soldier he was loyal to his to his ideals and I think he it was not simply myth-making I think he really believed that he was dying dying for a cause like a soldier in a battlefield well we should all die in such a way many thanks (laughs) My great pleasure, Sam. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider. And if you liked it, especially if you liked it, please rate and review it very favourably indeed. We also have a special offer. We can provide a £20 John Lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just £12. So that's practically an £8 bribe to read The Wonderful Spectator for 12 weeks running. And you just need to go to spectatorco.uk forward slash voucher.